Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gieschen. I write the Necker Substack, and the following is a conversation with Michael Mobison, who heads the Consilient Research Team at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. This conversation was originally recorded in June of 2022 for uh, Compound, which is where you can also find a full transcript with uh, detailed highlights of this conversation. So if you prefer to read or want to um, pick up uh, any specific quotes, um, I will add a link to to the transcript to the conversation at Compound uh, in the in the description to this app. Please keep in mind that none of the following is investment advice. All right, enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I love it that we finally can um, can record this. Um, and I'm super excited. And, and I want to start off with um, with something that you uh, tweeted about very recently, um, which was um, Stanley Druckenmiller's um, chat at the IRS own conference. And I thought it was fascinating because he's not your typical long-term fundamental investor. And yet you pointed out that there were quite a few ideas of his or, or things that he does that tie in with the concepts that you use. So I'm, I'm just curious what, um, if you could tell me what you, what you learned from that, what, what stood out to you? Uh... Thank you, Frederick. And first thing I'll say is I, I want to communicate how much I appreciate all the work you do in sharing many of your thoughts and, and reflections on investors past and present. So it's been a great benefit for all of us in the investment community. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, what Stan Druckenmiller and George Soros um, have done over the years is very different than the kinds of things that I think about or the kinds of things that I've taught, for example. But I guess what I would say is that when you observe very successful people over very long periods of time in these probabilistic fields, they tend to have certain attributes that are worth all of us paying attention to. So a couple of things that I pointed out, one is this idea of base rates. And you know, Druckenmiller doesn't use the term base rates, but he clearly understands the concept uh, in his mind, which is basically saying, I'm looking at a particular situation. Is there a reference class? Is there some sort of a past patterns of outcomes that will help me inform, help inform me about the decision that's before me? And so he does a, a bunch of that, but um, there's also another really important skill there, which is understanding when that reference class might have changed. And so he's not, it's, he doesn't look at it as chiseled in stone. He really looks at it as a, as a flexible dynamic thing. So that's one aspect I thought that was, was very valuable. Um, he had this one phrase where he just basically says, we have to operate with ruthless discipline and, uh, <laughs> and also open-mindedness. And so mm -hmm. those are other qualities that I think are really important. It's very often the case that uh, investors have very uh, good investment processes or investment processes certainly on paper that look terrific. I think where some of us uh, struggle is actually execution of that. And that's where that ruthless discipline component comes into play. And then, you know, the one thing that you find across uh, almost every great investor is this idea of curiosity, which leads to, I think, this idea of open-mindedness. So curiosity really is, I want to understand how this thing works and how I can make sense of it. And then hence, uh, potentially, how can I profit from it? And again, whether that's Jim Simons at Renaissance Technologies or Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, I think those guys share that, that interest and that fundamental curiosity. So Druckenmiller has all those things um, in droves. And, you know, again, just a very wise guy. The other thing I'll just say that he um, seemed to be very uh, sensitive about what he thought he knew and what he thought he didn't know, which I thought yeah. was quite interesting as well. So he was very comfortable creating a limit to his understanding 
And, uh, you know, again, very, very uh, admirable set of qualities. So I, I think that those sort of suite, suite of, of uh, characteristics are, are common among everybody who's successful in probabilistic fields. So it's not just investors, but if you look at, for example, successful you know, poker players or handicappers, if you look at successful sports team managers, they, they share many of these same qualities. And um, so, so again, whether or not you're doing that type of investing yourself or that fits your personality, there's, there's still a great deal we can draw from it. No, absolutely. You mentioned one more concept in, in your tweets, which I wasn't really that familiar with, right? So Dr. Miller had this idea of being self-aware mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, and, and he says it like, I have to know whether I'm hot or cold. And, and you pointed out um, mm -hmm. to, to a related concept, mm -hmm. these bursts. Can, can you explain that? And, 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 uh... Yeah, I don't know that this is totally right, but I think that um, I, I, I think I wrote something like he stirred up a hornet's nest. <laughs> so there's been a very long, I mean, a decades old long, this uh, debate in sports about this idea of the hot hand. Mm. And by the way, if you're an athlete or if you're a fan, it's something that you feel. I mean, so it's not like, I don't want to say that it's alien to people. And, and as an athlete myself, I, I certainly had those sensations. But the question is, is this a statistical property that's important? And so there was a big, obviously, Amos Traversky wrote a very famous paper saying that there was no such thing as a hot hand. So that was sort of the received wisdom for many decades. And then more recently, with much better data and better statistical techniques, others have demonstrated there, in fact, is a hot hand. Um, and uh, however, the, this it's just not that big a factor. I mean, it's not insignificant, but it's not that big a factor. So, so the hot hand thing, I think, I think the, the best thinking, at least my view, would be something like it exists but it's just not going to be an overwhelmingly important thing. So, so Drucker Miller described a situation where he said, sort of said, Hey, you know, sometimes I feel I am feeling it. Like I I'm seeing the ball. I know what's going on and mm -hmm. I feel like I can press what I'm doing quite aggressively. And then other times I don't feel as much in sync. And so I thought that that there's actually an interesting side literature on bursts of creativity in sort of creative fields. So don't think about just investing, but think of any kind of a creative field mm -hmm. and many creative uh, people, tend to go in these fits and starts. So I thought that what Druckenmiller was describing was a little bit more like that creative field where things seem to line up for you. You seem to understand what's going on. You seem to be very productive. Mm -hmm. In other periods, things feel a little bit less in sync and you know, you're, you're, and you may be inputting, but nothing sort of clicks into place. And then you sort of go back into that phase. So back and forth. So that's, I mean, I thought that was be, that would be how I would describe I thought that was a better way to describe it versus going, going, wading into this whole discussion about the hot hand. Yeah. Um, Frederick, there's one other thing that he talked about, and I, I got a couple of questions from people about this just to be super clear. Uh -huh. And it was about position sizing. Oh, yeah. And okay. so what we know, uh, broadly speaking, is that when you're trying to maximize your returns, you sort of need two things. One is you need some sort of an edge. So edge means you have a belief for a um, mathematical advantage that's not reflected in the current odds or in the market price. Okay. And then the second thing is how much you can bet on that when you have that advantage. And the intuition is quite straightforward, right? If you had perfect information, you knew your bet was going to make you money, you bet as everything you could, right? And then there are degrees of, of certainty about that, right? So there's this relationship between edge and betting size, and that leads to your total ability to generate excess returns. So he has this line, sort of zinger in the middle of it, where he says something like, uh, you know, what, what people said, what did you learn from Soros? And he said the main thing that he learned from Soros was something like that 
position sizing was 70 to 80% of the game or something like mm-hmm. that. Now, the reason that struck me is because, uh, so first of all, I'll just say that there uh, purportedly George Soros made money on fewer than 30% of his trades. And that alone is worth letting settle in a bit, right? So what, and, and obviously he's a multi-billionaire. So, so what does that mean? And he's one of the great investors of our, of our time. So what does that mean? It means that he had a lot of, uh, made a lot of investments that lost money. They probably did not lose much money. And then when he did make money, he made a lot of money, both by betting a lot of money and letting it run simultaneously. So that I thought was a really interesting lesson. So what I mentioned sort of offhandedly, which is where I came up with a lot of questions is speaking with a lot of my friends in the industry that work, for example, these multi-strategy firms, as pe- many people know, multi-strategy firms are these big overarching wrapper hedge funds, but they have many little investment pods within them, and then they sort of roll up the results. So they can observe mm-hmm. effectively uh, dozens of, in some cases, hundreds of little investment teams operating simultaneously under their roof, and they can examine their their performance, of course, and, and how they got there. So they these guys will go through quantitatively a decomposition of the returns. And by the way, they do generate um, pre-fee for sure, alpha on average, which is a measure of excess returns. But what they found was essentially all that return came from security selection and specifically stock picking. And very little came from uh, portfolio position sizing, portfolio construction issues. Right. And, and, and they said, you know, it's basically one out of 10 portfolio managers add value through that. So I just think that's a really interesting observation that here we have George Soros and Stanley Druckenmiller, two legendary investors who say that this is like the main thing that drives their returns and results over a long period of time. Whereas as we look at the real world, we find that most people don't create a lot of value from sizing and it's all security selection. So so the question is, is there, is there, uh, can we bring those things together to some degree? So can, for instance, a regular discretionary portfolio manager, can he or she improve by thinking about and being more systematic about position sizing? So I just throw that one out there as an open question, but, but that is an interesting and stark dichotomy between how he got to where he is and how most uh, portfolio managers get to where they are. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I'm always struck, this might be, um, I'm not sure there's, there's a great answer to this, but so the, I'm always curious about the relationship between analysts and portfolio managers. And then a lot of analysts ultimately want to be portfolio managers, but whereas there is a lot of training for how to be an analyst, there's much less for how to be a portfolio manager. And that transition to me seems very like, how do you, so for example, for Druckmiller, right, he learned it from a mentor, but you're not guaranteed to have a, a mentor who is either good at that or willing to, uh, willing and able to really teach you. I'm curious, you've seen a number of different investment organizations from the inside, you, you interact with a lot of professional investors. What have you learned about um, kind of the relationship between analysts and, and portfolio managers and, and that transition and, and how it works well or doesn't work well? Just what, what are some of the lessons there? Yeah, it's a fabulous question. And you're right. I mean, there are many, most analysts aspire to someday that may be a portfolio manager. And as you point out correctly, the sets of skills are somewhat different. And so some organizations, by the way, do a great job of grooming and teaching analysts to be great portfolio managers. Other organizations do less of it. So there's there are just a couple things to point out. One is that when you're an analyst, I think you get 
you know, you're, you're more focused on what I would call depth versus breadth, right? So you're going to go deep into a particular industry or sector. You're going to be the resident expert. Many, many funds would want their, uh, their investor following a company or industry to be really the, the most thoughtful and detailed and more and most knowledgeable about that particular sector. When you're a portfolio manager, of course, you can't really, you don't have time to allocate to doing that. You have to rely on others. So you're more about breadth. So you have to understand how to construct a portfolio, being able to understand how to look across different industries in order to, to put something together. So that breadth versus depth thing is really important. One of the big outcomes of that, and this is something I stress a lot with my own students at Columbia Business School, is that usually a very good portfolio manager will be able to focus on the two or three issues that matter most for a particular company. And they're very good at identifying those and homing in on those. And as a consequence, they, they, they leave aside a lot of extraneous information and details and focus on what really matters. So that's a, that's a key skill. I don't know if you can teach that, but that's a big one. Um, the second thing is what we just talked about, which is even if you now think you can identify securities that are attractive, you have to put them together in a portfolio that's, that, that's good. And so that has to do with portfolio construction and sizing and how you think about issues like diversification, right? There's, there are lots of discussions about concentration versus more diversified portfolios and so forth, but you have to have a point of view and a way to think about all those things that are really, that are really useful. Now, the last thing I'll mention, which I find interesting, and this, this, much of this research, this is academic research. It mostly comes out of the mutual fund complex. Let me just underscore that reason it's mutual funds, because we have a lot of data. It's been around for a long time. It's, it's relatively big. And so, this may not apply broadly speaking, but it does apply for mutual funds. And what they found was um, older portfolio managers tended to do slightly worse than newer ones, in part because they stopped listening to their analysts. <laughs> so it turns out analysts do add a lot of value or can a lot of value in organizations, but PMs sort of figure out, they sort of figure that they've got it, you know, they're a little more seasoned and they sort of figured it out. And, it, and, it, and the argument is that listening to the analysts would have done, that would have benefited their performance overall. So that's another thing to stay attuned to as a portfolio manager, is you may think that you're sort of sitting at the top of the, the top of the heap, but just to recognize that, that that depth does have value in some ways and just in, continuing to integrate that breadth and depth as, as skillfully as possible is really important. So yeah, they get, it's, it's a very different set of skills for sure. And I think that, uh, I think some, many of them are teachable, but, um, it, it's not for everybody. Yeah. It's interesting as a downside to, uh, to that experience. Um, I'm curious, uh, a couple of just related questions. One is, um, when you, when you meet a new team or new organization or, um, and you talk to the analysts, I'm, I'm sure at this point you've seen, and you've taught analysts, you've seen just a lot. Are there any common themes where analysts intuitively, uh, you know, often kind of get off track or like any common themes among mistakes? Like what have you know, like what, what are like unifying patterns among all the analysts where you like, you have to pay attention to, to these issues? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the first thing to say is that what you want any investment organization to do is to have a reasonably well-articulated approach to how they think they're going to generate excess returns. And um, the, the answer is there are myriad ways to do that, right? And again, I, I, I'll just repeat their names, you know, from Jim Simons and Renaissance Technology, which is employing, you know, scores of PhDs and highly mathematical and lots of trading. And that's clearly been quite successful over a long period of time to Berkshire Hathaway. So these guys sitting around in offices and reading all day and making relatively few, but very substantial decisions. 
And there's everything in between those two things. So the first thing is just to say is think about why you think inefficiencies are going to arise, how you as an organization will take advantage of those things, how you're structured to do so. That's the first big thing. The second thing is once you've laid that out, then you want to align the activities that you're pursuing as an organization to, to I call the term I use is congruent, to be congruent with that. So they're consistent and they're supporting it. So to answer your question directly, Frederick, I think that the problem is often that people stray from that. In other words, they don't do what they say they're supposed to do. And mm -hmm. um, it's easy to get drawn away from that and, and think about stuff that's extraneous to your process. But that to me tends to be the key thing. There was a wonderful, I, I hope I'm paraphrasing this, but I hope it's correct. There was a, a, a letter from Seth Klarman at Bow Post to his, to his shareholders. And he said, you know, it is our, we aspire to the idea that if you lifted the roof off our organization and peered in and saw our investors operating, that they would be doing precisely what you thought that they would mm. be doing, right? Given what we've said we're going to do. So it's this idea of congruence. And so mm -hmm. it's very easy for people to sort of stray off. So I think that's a lot of it. And that goes back to our ruthless discipline, right? Just making sure you're focusing on what you're supposed to be doing and not other stuff. So that, that to me uh, would be a big one. And um, the other thing I'll just say that there, uh, the other aspect of this is that there are, there, are, there are technical things you need to be able to do to be an effective analyst. You, you, you need to make certain calculations the right way. You need to think about things clearly. Um, so, you know, specific examples would be, you know, if you're going to talk about return on invested capital, you should calculate that correctly. If you're going to talk about free cash flow, you should calculate that correctly. And those things should be done uniformly and correctly across organizations. And that's often not the case. So, you know, you're the portfolio manager and analyst A comes in and says, this company's got an 18% ROIC and analyst B comes in and says, this one's got a 32% ROIC and they're calculating them totally different <laughs> ways. You know, that's not going to be very helpful. So, so there are yeah. technical things as well that I'd want to learn. And, and, and that's often, even when I've interviewed analysts, um, or portfolio managers for that matter, but interviewing analysts, I would often just ask them lots of questions about how they approach things like valuation, how they select the multiples they use, or how mm -hmm. they do their calculations in order to understand that they, they've, they've just got their technical uh, skills down appropriately. And that's, it's remarkable how many people don't do that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, um, this isn't exactly what you do, but I, I spent some time in, in seats where you allocate mm -hmm. capital to managers. And I love this idea of being able to um, pull up the roof and see what's actually happening, what everybody's actually doing versus you sit in a meeting and somebody explains to you what either it's either a pitch, it's either sales, or they actually believe it, but it, it may or may not, may not be happening. What would your advice be to people who have to select managers and are kind of confronted with this conundrum that it's almost as hard to pick a manager as it is for the manager to then, you know, pick securities and, and make investments, right? And and even though people consider institutional allocators kind of smart money, there's, I think, evidence that they too just kind of fall prey to to chasing performance. Have you have you found any any good advice for for selecting managers? No, it's more more of a repeat of the same ideas, which yeah. is I would first want to understand a process and and how it rolls up into what we Seem to be excess returns, and so you can you can be pretty straightforward about going through the details of this. You know, one way to think about this is this idea from um, uh, it's called the fundamental law of active management. 
which many people may have heard of, and the, the fancy formula is information ratio equals information coefficient times the square root of breadth. In plain words, it says excess returns are a function of skill times opportunity set. And so if an investor gen hopes to generate some sort of an excess return, you might use that as a guideline to, to break down the fundamental law of active management and ask if they've got the components in place. By the way, it's Grinold and, and Connor, the two guys that came up with that um, fundamental law. So information coefficient in, is a measure of skill. And it basically says, if you, you know, project something, does it come true? So it's a measure of calibration in your skill. But you can also break that down in terms of batting average and slugging. This goes back to our conversation about mm. Druck and Miller. Batting average is a measure of for every 100 investments you make, what percent go up, literally just go up versus what go down. So we're measuring that. And then slugging is how much money you make when you make money versus how much money you lose when you lose money. And of course, you can have a low batting average if you have a very high slugging rate. Um, if you have a low slugging rate, then you need a high batting average. And so I'd want to break down for an investor. I, I'd want to understand exactly how they're thinking about that and that ratio and those things. And then breadth is the other one, which is how many opportunities. Breadth, one of the ways we measure breadth practically is through this concept of dispersion, which is how much, you know, how much variation is there in stock price returns. So you want to know the dispersion of the asset class in which that investor is participating and to see if the dispersion is sufficiently large for them to express their skill and whether that dispersion is widening, widening or narrowing. So, so that's one way to have a systematic way to, to sort of break down what a, a particular investment process looks like and whether, again, it's congruent. And then you're going to focus on the people, right? So are they, are they, do they have the uh, intellectual curiosity, the humility, the F, you know, they're going to, are they hardworking? Um, and they, they're going to do things to make sure that they, um, that they can deliver those returns. So for example, if you have a, if you have a low, uh, you know, batting average, just slightly over 50 and you have very low slugging, you know, you need a lot of opportunities. And so as a consequence, you need, you know, those kinds of organizations are people that have to be constantly turning for new ideas, right? By contrast, if you have an organization says, we're going to be relatively concentrated, we want a high batting average, we want even a high slugging, they're going to have, the, the breadth is not the issue. I mean, they're, they're going to have to find gems of ideas, but they're not mm -hmm. going to find, find a ton of them, right? Right. Then just making sure that everything seems to be seem to be aligned. And then the last thing, I mean, you, you, you mentioned this, that notwithstanding, I think everybody in the world knows that performance is only one indicator of skill. I think we all have a tendency when a manager is underperforming to think he or she doesn't know what they're doing. And when they're outperforming, think that they're geniuses. And of course, uh, there's so much noise, especially in the short term, that that tends to be, um, that tends to be very misleading. So trying to, trying to keep, keep your head above all that fray to understand and think about longer term processes, I think is really a, uh, really a big deal. Um, and there, there, you know, you can do this through simulation or whatever, but you can, it, it should be, it should be very clear that even skillful managers will, will definitely underperform for stretches and even unskillful managers will do very well for stretches and, uh, you know, sticking to the, sticking to the program, I think is really important. Yeah. When, when I, um, think about a, a manager, manager I'd want to invest with for the long term, I, I think one quality that's important, I think is this curiosity and ability to, to learn and improve and adapt over time. And you wrote fairly recently, an interesting piece on, um, feedback and, and how people and organizations can, can learn and improve. Um, maybe let's start off with just, what was your key takeaway on from, from that paper? What, what, uh, what did you learn? 
Um, to go just a little bit backward, one of the things that I have always observed is that in most fields, <clears throat> timely and quality and accurate feedback tend to improve performance. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a tennis player or you know, musician, you're likely to have a coach, even if you're an elite or participant, you're likely to have a coach who will tweak, you know, it won't be big because you're so good, but you'll have a coach to help you in that process. The investment management industry, and by the way, this is an industry that's, you know, draws a lot of really smart people, the remuneration is attractive and so forth. So it's a very competitive, interesting field is remarkable in the sense that feedback is very difficult to attain, right? So, I mean, in the long run, it's portfolio performance and so on and so forth. But in the short run, it's very, very difficult to do. So yeah. the question is, are there any mechanisms for us to uh, allow us to give ourselves quality feedback? So then that got me going back to the very top, which was um, if you study, for example, Phil Tetlock's work on super forecasting. So Phil Tetlock, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, participated, now this is probably a decade ago, in a forecasting tournament that was sponsored by the, the Defense Department. And they, put to, they, they invited people to participate on their team, and they found that 2% of them, so one in 50 were so-called super forecasters, people making really good forecasts that were way beyond what chance would dictate. You know, and then the, and they sort of decomposed what those people were doing. So, but if you talk to Phil and you say, well, what is the key? He's like, well, you got to get the right people. That's the key. That's a first starting point. So I opened the piece by talking about what are the right qualities that we would look for as, in, as investors. And so we drew on that super forecasting literature. Uh, we also drew on this literature on this idea of rationality quotient by Keith Stanovich. And I think that's very powerful work. Stanovich has made this sort of really interesting and I think core provocative claim that there's a distinction between IQ, intelligence quotient, which measures something you know real and good, and what he calls rationality quotient, which is the ability to make good decisions. And so he, along with some of his colleagues, developed a specific test to measure rationality. And if you look at the subcomponents of that test, it seems really consistent with what we would care about as investors. The other thing, Frederick, that's important is even if you're sort of identifying those skills that you think are going to be key to success, the next question to ask is what can we train for and what can what is sort of you know hard to train for? So yeah. I was inspired there by a conversation with a professional, uh, uh, an executive at a professional sports team. It was American football. And he was talking about, you know, in each position, we try to identify four to six sets of skills that we think are key to elite performance and in, in the National Football League. And, you know, as it turns out, you know, some of those skills are things that they could teach. They're coachable and other things, you know, height or speed are very difficult to actually train for. So that's another interesting thing is, are there cognitive analogs to these physical things that these sports guys? Once you've got the sort of people thing, the other, the other interesting question is um, in every domain, again, elite performers tend to practice, right? Mm. So every sports team practices, every musician practices, every comedian practices. So the question is, what is practice in investment management? Yeah. How much time should we be allocating to that? You know, it's a really fundamentally interesting question. And so what you're doing is taking yourself essentially offline in order to be more effective when you come back online, right? That's, that's what I'm going to say is sort of practice and training are, are associated with that. And there are lots of interesting questions that come out of that. For example, topics like skill transfer. So if I teach you to be a great poker player or backgammon player or chess mm. player, are those skills going to map over to you as you're in your investing seat? That's a really interesting question. 
And then the second thing, the second big thing we studied was just sort of how, how, you know, people are embedded in organizations. And so it's lovely to think that you're doing all these things by yourself and you've got the right attributes and so forth. But the question is, once you're in an organization, does the organization enhance your ability to make decisions or does it detract? And, you know, there's, again, the, the, the work on this is quite clear that you want to, you know, when you're working in a team, you want to get different surface, different points of view. And the biggest problem in teams and organizations typically is that dissenting views tend to get squashed, right? And then the last part is the feedback. So just to bring this back to full circle to the very top. And, you know, what we argue is when you have an investment thesis to buy or sell something, that means you believe you're going to generate an excess return or there's a mispricing in the market, if you want to say it that way. And you're going to have a thesis. And that thesis should have subcomponents to it that will allow us to create a scoring system. The most common of these or known of these is called a Breyer score, B-R-I-E-R, Breyer score. Breyer himself was a meteorologist. So you can imagine this was developed most first for meteorologists who obviously are predicting rain or, or sunshine with certain probabilities. And then they observe the outcomes very quickly to see if they're right or wrong. So that helps them get better calibrated. To have a Breyer score, you only need three things. You need a, an outcome that we can agree upon within a time period that we are is finite with some probability. And uh, if you have those three things, you're in business to calculate a Breyer score, right? And so my argument is break down your thesis and, mm. and put it into some Breyer score ready predictions. Again, they're, they're embedded there, they're, they're, they're there. You just have to surface them and then start to keep track. And you don't, this doesn't have to be on a public scoreboard or anything like that. You can just do this for yourself. But what I find is just the, the very um, discipline of like writing those things down will force you or compel you to think more about them and, and, and to think more deeply about them. So for example, if you're doing, if you're assigning probabilities, you're going to immediately start searching for base rates, right? So that's like, it gets you, lead you down that path almost automatically. And the very final, final thing I'll say is that it turns out that the evidence shows that when people get feedback that's timely and accurate, they get better. Right. So they just get a better, better, this, these probabilistic forecasts. So it all works. Um, but it's, so again, this requires a little bit of discipline. It requires, it's not costly, right. That in, in terms of like, you know, extra stuff, you're just writing things down effectively, but it requires some discipline. And I just think it's something that our industry could do more of than we actually do. Um, the other thing I'll say is that it turns out that usually when, you know, you make an investment or you make a bet on something that doesn't turn out well, we're very skilled at telling stories as to why it didn't work out or, right. or, yes. myth, or you just wait, you know, so we're very skillful. And as, as storytellers, we tell each other stories. They're they tend to be reasonably well-received. So it's not like, you know, and I think people are saying these things quite earnestly, but the question is whether, you know, whether we can get, we can do better than that. And instead of patching over our mistakes by telling ourselves stories, can we actually learn from what we've done correctly and what we've done incorrectly? And by the way, sometimes you make a perfectly proper decision and the outcome is not good. Well, that's fine. I mean, that, and that's other, that's also a very important lesson, which is don't deviate from what you've done. If over the long haul, you, you continue to believe that will serve you well. Right. No resulting. <coughs> and it's, it's funny that we're back to the discipline and these, these uh, universal qualities. And, and as you mentioned, transferable skills, right? It's, it's amazing how many, um, very skilled investors and very successful investors also play bridge or poker or, or active in other probabilistic fields. You mentioned one thing in that feedback piece, which stood out, um, which was the term of the elite team. 
and sort of the maybe the distinction or the the compounding effect of doing what you just outlined well and then also having it having the team work well together and i'm i'm curious it, it seems to me now like i mean teamwork is both more important than ever but it also feels to me that there's a new challenge with everybody's distributed and and you sort of have to figure out how to be and yet the 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 the, the benefit of having a team work really well is 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 high so can you just briefly tell me like what is an elite team why are they so why are they special and are there any um did you any, learn anything about how to how to create one yeah, this, this is a great question. And um, let me first say that Tetlock and his colleagues, when they did the Good Judgment Project, this forecasting tournament, they're scientists, right? So they did a lot of really interesting things where they would they would say, well, if we train people, will it help, help them or not? If we put them in teams, will it help them or not, right? And they have controls for everything so they can compare it to what they would have, what the other out outcome would have be. And just in terms of ranking, I'll just say this at the outset, what they found, and this is in terms of forecasting accuracy, this is the actual test, right? Forecasting accuracy. They found if there was no training, those people tended to do the worst relative to randomness, right? Versus just flipping coins. If they were trained, they did somewhat better. So training does help people. And by the way, most of the training that's most effective relates to base rates. So even that core concept carries a lot of uh, freight in terms of getting you to a better spot. Then they found that people operating in teams did better than the people even with training. So teams added value relative to even those who are individuals who are trained. And then very much to your point, so that the apex was that elite teams did the very best, right? So elite teams are now markedly better than no an individual with no training. Um, by the way, just in, in terms of backdrop, and this has been a watershed change even in, within my career, um, Portfolios are now, they used to be predominantly run by individuals. Mm -hmm. And let's call when I say predominantly, it's called you know, 75, 80%. And that ratio now is completely flipped. So something like 75 to 80% of portfolios are now team run, which is in and of itself very interesting. So can you, as you point out, can you harness the benefits of that team, like all the good things about it without the bad things about it? If you think about teams, there are really three components that are essential. And by the way, when I say elite teams or when Tedlock talked about elite teams, He's, this elite team is a super forecaster. So these are the best right. of the forecasters working together, right? And so they have certain ways of thinking about things. Okay, so when you talk about teams, I think there are sort of three important things. The first important thing is how big should it be? Um, and this is the, the, there's a guy named Richard Hackman, he's died, but he was an organizational psychologist most recently at Harvard who made a life, basically life's work of this study and, and, and found that the optimal team size was four to six. And he also found that if you were going to make a mistake, three would be preferable to seven. So that four to six seems to be sort of the sweet spot. And by the way, Hackman didn't really study investment organizations. He studied all sorts of organizations, right? So this is not just a, uh, it's not an investment thing, but this is something that's important for us to think about because it, it, it tends to be a human, like a human condition. The second is uh, how do we compose the team? And here we get into the discussions about diversity and they're typically defined as three types of diversity that people talk about. The first is uh, social category diversity. So age, race, gender, ethnicity, and so forth. And usually when you hear about diversity programs, it's almost always referring to those social category di dimensions of diversity. By the way, and these are also things we can categorize and count and so forth. The second type of diversity is called cognitive diversity. This is ways of thinking about the world, its training, its experience, its personality, it's just what you what is unique that you're bringing to the party. Now, 
I would just say that when you study the decision-making literature, I think what you find is that people will suggest that it is cognitive diversity that is the key to solving problems. So this is what we're really after. Now, I think one can make the case very seriously uh, and quite rigorously that social category diversity contributes to cognitive diversity, but it is cognitive diversity is sort of what we're after. And then the third type of diversity is, is sort of values diversity, or you might think about it as a sense of purpose. And that you actually want to be low. In other words, we want a common missions. Even if mm. we are of very different backgrounds, we are, we're, we're rowing on the same, we're pulling the, right. the same direction, right? So yeah. you want to be yeah. in a common sense. So, so that's, the, so you want to, you, so now we have a four to six uh, people. We have this cognitive diversity that we're, we're solving for. And then the third and final piece is how you manage the group. And this mm -hmm. is usually, by the way, where the mistakes happen. Um, it is rare that even it, you know in most organizations there aren't people thinking things that are different than what's going on around them, right? But they're just not going to say it, right? And so what happens is leaders of teams often uh, stymie this process by indicating what they believe, or you know, he or the leader, he he or she sort of leans into one sort of solution or one sort of decision, and everybody else sort of uh, falls into line in the investment or in business. Uh, it's, it's truly rare to have consensus, right? If you have consensus, you should be asking what the heck is going on, right? Because there are too many different ways to think about this. So if I say, mm -hmm. Frederick, where do you think the market will be in six months? Or where I ask a team of people, or where do you think oil prices will be your interest rates? If everybody said, oh, we all agree, that would actually put up a bunch of red flags. You'd be like, oh, what the heck is going on here, right? You want people yeah. to have different yeah. points of view. So the idea there is to make sure that you have mechanisms to make sure that you're thinking about distributions of potential outcomes and that you're, you're weighting these things. And so when you come up with a decision, you have a, a richer way of thinking about that. And uh, so good. So this is really uh, the onus here is on the leader and the leader of that group has to make sure that he or she, again, is surfacing alternative points of view, making sure that their people are expressing those views in an independent fashion that as a group, they everybody thoughtfully weighs those things, so not all ideas are created equally, and then you come to a solution based on all of that. So it's that that last piece is actually typically the component. By the way, when I talk to investment organizations and I say, "Oh yeah, you know, have you ever been in a room in a meeting where you have a thought that's different than what the leader believes?" <laughs> you know, there's usually not a lot of incentive to. To yeah. chime in on that. The room you know, gets quiet. <laughs> your room gets quiet and you're like better off, you know, just sort of like suppressing your own views on things. So the leaders, the best leaders are those who, who purposefully draw those out and consider them again, going back to this idea of open-mindedly, they, they consider them in a, in a, in a, in a more detailed fashion. God, that makes, that makes sense. And um, going back to the, to the feedback piece, I, I like what you outlined in terms of the, um, shortening the feedback loop, because there's another sort of longer secular theme that you've written about and had a, actually had a terrific in-depth piece with a lot of data about the, the shift from public to private markets, right? And, and a lot of it was private equity, but also venture capital. And I'm curious how you think about the um, sort of your tool belt of concepts and ideas and how it applies to people who are active in private markets where the rules are a little bit different, right? The, the feedback loops are fairly long. You can't just select any security. You have to get into a deal. So, so there are certain incentives and certain um, just different mechanisms. But um, I'm sure, I mean, it, it's just a it's just a fact that a lot of the industry has has shifted. And and I'm curious how you think um, 
you know, the, the, the same ideas apply or not, or what kind of lessons, like, what, what do you, yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, so a few things, one is that, um, we, we also wrote a report called everything of the DCF model, right? So, <laughs> so what I was arguing there was that notwithstanding, we have these different asset classes and perhaps different heuristics in various asset classes. We need to recognize at the end of the day, an investment is an outlay today in return for more cash in the future. And after adjusting for inflation, hopefully, you know, you earn some appropriate rate of return for the risk you're assuming. So I never want to stray too far from those fundamentals. And I actually believe that, that and, and that's what I argued, but I think that actually applies across the spectrum of asset classes you just described. Mm -hmm. Second thing, just to say, I mean, you know, I think that it, we've had a 40 year secular bull market in bonds, right? So rates have come down. And so you can track them. I mean, it's not quite as simple as this, but if you look at basically expected returns for a lot of different asset classes have drifted lower. Yeah. At the same time, liabilities have typically not drifted lower. So if you have to put a kid through college or you have to save for your own retirement, or if you're an endowment and you just, you know, you're, you're seeking to fund current scholar, future scholarships or, or fund the operations of the institution, your liabilities have not gone down. So as a consequence, a lot of these pension funds and endowments, and even in our own personal accounts have to pursue a little bit riskier strategies. So buyouts and venture help achieve that by pushing you out on the risk spectrum to some degree, right? So buyouts predominantly is by doing it through leverage, financial leverage. Mm -hmm. The premise is you buy this business, you can prove the operations, but there's a kicker from financial leverage. And then venture is just simply typically getting in at earlier stages and earlier stages is comes with the uh, higher risk, of course. And so as a consequence, you're getting there. Now, the other thing to think about is when you think about venture buyouts versus public markets is the trade-off between control and liquidity, mm. right? In public markets, we have the benefit of liquidity, which is if we screw it up, we can reverse our decisions quite readily. And uh, I mean, it's not costless, but it's not that costly to do that. Yeah. By contrast, if you're a buyout firm or a venture firm and you make an investment, it is often very difficult to, to reverse that. And so as a consequence, um, that's another trade-off that's also very important to bear in mind. Now, the last thing that's gotten a lot of attention recently, um, folks like Cliff Bastness, I think has correctly talked about this, which is there seems to be this psychological component to, to private markets in general, which is their marks are not based on markets, right? So their yeah. marks are based on what the uh, general partner says they are. They're obviously using some sort of benchmarks and they justify what they're doing, but there tends to be inherently less volatility in those marks than there would be in public markets. And uh, on one hand, on the one hand, that's not realistic, right? Because if they had to liquidate those investments, for example, they would not be able to do it at the price at which they've, they've marked it. But the flip side is it actually creates a lot of, um, it, it creates some sense that uh, the, the returns are pretty good for the risk people are assuming. And it keeps the limited partners in their seats, right? It keeps people mm -hmm. from so the very fact that they're locked up and they see less volatility, even though they are in, you know, by definition in riskier assets, it keeps them from making a suboptimal decisions. So there's sort of this, this, this uh, mirage of lower volatility creates essentially what ends up being an effective, an effective, um, an, an effective psychological technique to keep people in their seats. So, you know, we talk about the illiquidity premium, the illiquidity premium says that assets that are illiquid should earn a higher return. So they should get a lower multiple yeah. to compensate for that lack of liquidity. And this, and so now it seems like this illiquidity premium is actually flipping around is actually that people are, you know, they're not looking for a higher return. It's just the very fact that we're not getting the marks that are perfectly accurate, keeps people from, from doing the wrong thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, uh... 
I guess a lot of it just comes back to to incentives and, and psychology. And um, I want to, uh, you recently re, re-released, republished, updated expectations investing, right? And um, one thing that strikes me about the book is that you emphasize how closely um, sort of corporate strategy is tied, drives drives a lot of the factors. There's there's terrific diagrams in there, and um, I I was thinking though, how do you think your audience? I'd say are primarily investors and, and often professional investors, but what do you think are the the lessons for somebody who's in the in the operating seat, somebody who's a founder building a business, running a business or an operating unit? Um, where should they look for for wisdom, either in this book or generally in in your work? How how closely does it tie together? Great question, Frederick. And I actually think they're oppo- opposite sides of the same coin. And and you know you 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 know the lineage of this, but I'll just repeat it that I learned about this concept of the link between strategy and valuation from Al Al Rappaport. Yeah, Rappaport's book called Creating Shareholder Value came out in 1986 originally, in the new version of his book in 1998. The target target audience for that book were corporate executives, so they're very much aimed at that audience. And, and chapter seven of the original book was called something like "Stock Market Signals for Managers." So he was that was the audience he was speaking to. So how how do we make this link really explicit? Well, the litmus test of a quality strategy is that it creates value. So you're an executive and you're thinking about various strategies. You're thinking about how you're going to spend your marketing dollars. You're thinking about expanding this geography, whatever it is, right? You're thinking about raising prices, lowering prices, whatever it is. The question is, does it create value, right? At the end of the day, that, I mean, there could be other objectives, but that's the primary objective we tend to to, to focus on. And then the other thing is to say is obviously if you're valuing something, uh, you need to understand the competitive position of that company within its industry to determine the, you know, have a sense of the stream of cash flows. For a corporate executive, for example, that makes enormous, that's enormously relevant, for example, in M&A, right? So M&A, we're going to buy XYZ. We may identify synergies, in other words, costs we can cut or what have you. But at the end of the day, we need to know that this is going to be a business that will live up to what it's already priced in. We're going to pay a premium for it. So I think these are, it's absolutely the opposite side of the same coin. And I think that, you know, I think, I think we allude to it in the book, but maybe we should have done even been in, I think we talked at the beginning, but even maybe more adamantly, which is, it turns out that I think executives of public companies in particular sh- should absolutely understand the expectations priced into their stock. And they're sort of the, the first reason is that if they believe something that the market doesn't seem to be pricing in, they have a communication opportunity, right? So they can sort of say, you guys, you know, Mark, you think margins are going to be X, we think they'll be higher than X or whatever it is. That's one. And the second is, if the market doesn't seem to be giving you credit for what you think you can achieve in terms of financial performance, you have an opportunity, right? To in this either to buy back stock, or if you think the market's overestimating it, to sell stock. And as a consequence, you can create value for ongoing shareholders by by doing that as well. So, I and and by the way, I'll just say that most executives, um, certainly the most chief executive officers, are not at all versed in this. They're and this is sort of the core element of capital allocation. They're just not versed in this, in part because the skills that required them to get to their seat as CEO were not these skills. Yeah. So as a consequence, you know, I've argued this before. I think, well, I got this from Warren Buffett and others. You know, when you become the CEO, you become chief capital allocator. And mm-hmm. very, very few executives have taught have been taught and, and know how to allocate capital. And they very few executives really understand how capital markets work. 
And so this is this is almost like our analyst portfolio manager conversation, right? Yeah. When you get to that seat, all of a sudden you have the set of responsibilities and skills that become important that may not you may never have dealt with before. And so, you know, like Will Thorndike wrote a wonderful book called The Outsiders about, you know, these eight CEOs who did an exceptional job. You know, it turns out, you know, he's obviously picked people who did well. But the whole the title of the book gives it away, right? Which is these people are kind of unusual, right? In the sense yeah. of unusual backgrounds, they were often not traditional. And as a consequence, this this was something that they they embraced or or somehow did naturally, which is really interesting. So yeah, I think these things absolutely go together. And it, it, probably the funnel it leads to is capital allocation. And by the way, investors, what are we doing? We're allocating capital. You give me hundred dollars and I try to put it to its best and highest use. And if you're an executive, you have a hundred dollars, you try to put it to its best and highest use. I mean, they're doing, everybody's doing the sort of the same thing and we're using the same way to figure it out, like excess returns versus an opportunity cost, right? That's basically what we're all doing. So I think, I think it is absolutely applicable and, and sort of, and, and, you know, obviously expectations investing is essentially taking the same ideas from creating shorter value and flipping them for the investor, but the core ideas and the core drivers are all basically similar. And and do you think, as as you mentioned, um, but it, there's a couple of interesting nuances to it, right? This sort of what got you here won't get you there. You rise in the organization, and now you're faced with, or, or you founded the organization, and, and nobody um, gave you this framework. But also, um, as an investor, right? You flip in, instead of starting with "I value this company," you, you flip it on its head. It's like, well, what is the market actually implying? But I'm curious if you think for this idea to proliferate. Are there any hurdles or biases against this? Or, or why do you think are people hesitant or like, why hasn't it caught on the way? Like, I'm, I'm just curious how you think about this, this idea making making the rounds. And, and is it because people are, it, it's too difficult to to understand the, the, the expectations and find them? Or is it count, too counterintuitive? What? Um... This is a fascinating question because I actually, set out to try to answer this before we republished the new version of the book. So I was actually very keen. I had the same exact thought. A couple things come to mind. First of all, I'll just say that in many other domains that are similar to this, you do see people do this almost as, as a matter of course. Um, I've mentioned before Stephen Christ, who wrote, you know, was a, was a, you know, a handicapper, but he's written a lot about handicapping. And he wrote this chapter called Christ on Value. And if you read that, and for those who have not gotten to it, you should read it. You can find it on the internet. It's 13 pages. If you read Chris on value, that chapter, you'll see that he's, ex he's explicitly talking about fundamentals versus expectations, right? Fundamentals being how fast the horse will run expectations, what's on the tote board. And he makes the point. It's not about how the fastest horse. It's about where there are mispricings, right? So just to say, that's the first thing that this absolutely does exist um, in other domains. But I think when you turn to investing, I think that there's a sense of being in control. Oh, I guess the second thing I'll say is if I, I went back and looked at this, and by the way, there are some great quotes from John Burr Williams. So John Burr Williams in the late 1930s wrote sort of the first, I would call, I don't know, like pretty foundational text on valuation. Um, and it was called The Theory of Investment Value, by the way, which is just such a wonderful sweeping title. And he laid out essentially the dividend discount model, right? There are lots of uh, odds and ends that had not been figured out, but that that core idea of Williams 1938, that is still around today. And uh, Williams got some great quotes where he says, hey, you know, you may want to use my model to figure out the value. He goes, but if you don't want to forecast, just take the current price and go backward and say what has to happen. So there's, you know, actually, yeah. John Burr Williams talked about this 1938. 
great quotes from Keynes, you know, Keynes chapter 12 of, of general theory is called the state of long-term expectation, right? Yeah. Keynes was on, on this. So when you look at some of these great thinkers, they certainly were, were on it. But I think that going back to today's investors, I think we all have the sense of being in control and being in control is me saying that this company is worth X and then finding gaps between X and where the stock price is today. So um, I just, I, I just think that, and by the way, they're not mutually exclusive, but understanding what has to happen for today's price to make sense is just such a fundamentally, I think, attractive proposition. And then evaluating whether you think that those that those growth rates and sales and profit margins and capital intensity and return on in capital that's implied, whether those things are plausible or not, it just makes, me, makes enormous sense to, to as, as an approach. So, by the way, if you say this to people, everyone nods. I mean, it's not like people go, right. it doesn't make any sense to me. It makes sense to everybody. But again, it requires a little bit of discipline. And it's not how you, it's not how people were trained. It's not how they grew up. So mostly you 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 go to an investment firm. They go, okay, here here's your industry. Create a comp table. Your comp table yeah. is going to have some comp comparative tables. So you're going to compare this company versus other ones. And you're going to compare it on price to earnings ratios and price to book and enterprise value, EBITDA multiples and whatever other metrics. That's how people are trained to do it. And so what looks cheap looks looks expensive. So so it's just not it like tends not to be part of how people think about these things. So. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say, there is technical stuff. As I, as I mentioned before, a lot of people, when they, even when they do discounted cash flow models, and we wrote a piece many years ago, which we should probably do a reprise of it. It was called, you know, um, you know, common errors in DCF models. And if you just read most DCF, you know, read sell side models. Um, and by the way, there's some academics who have studied this in more detail than I did. I mean, there, there just tend to be lots of flaws, both technical flaws and conceptual flaws and how people do that. So the answer is if you're a sell side analyst and you're publishing, you you have a you you have the answer in your head and then you create a model that solves for your answer right so you're not really doing it like you're not right. really doing it like the other way around so um, so that's the other thing I'll just mention is that people are not doing these models with with the uh, complete integrity that they probably demand. Yeah, that's, that that sounds fair. Um, it's it's funny that you mentioned investors being in control and I think especially if, once you go into a bear market that. Um, sense sort of quickly disappears. And you've you've been a very long-term shareholder of Amazon. And you once tweeted that, um, <laughs> I think, that you didn't add, but also didn't sell when it was, <laughs> I, I don't think, remember exactly what, how much, but it, Amazon was down, what, 90% plus from the dot-com peak. So I'm curious, what was that experience like? And at the time, why didn't you so like, what, how did you think about conviction and, and, and that company? And just tell me about holding a company through a stock through that kind of drawdown. Yeah. I mean, just as, as by way of background, um, I first learned about this company, probably the, the, the call that I got was from Bill Gurley at, who at the time was part of the underwriting team at Deutsche Bank who did the IPO Bill was at the time an analyst. Now he's gone on to be a venture capitalist, well-known venture capitalist. But Bill just said, like, you know, you should meet these guys because the way they think about things, even though this is a completely, you know, nascent industry doing completely different stuff, the kind of stuff, the language they're using is the language you're going to be familiar with and you're going to, you're going to be excited about it. So in the, in the late 1990s, I met, you know, Jeff Bezos and I met Joy Covey at the time, the CFO. And I just listened to, and by the way, that 1997 letter, which I know they repeat, they publish every year. You know, I think that Joy played a large hand in writing that letter. I think Jeff certainly bought into it conceptually. And I think that's really been their guiding light for the most part, which has been great. So, you know, Joy would just say to me, like, we think like we 
our big fans are, are Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. We think about return on capital. We think about long-term. We think about all this stuff the right way. And you know, she's like, we're making investments that appear to be bad, but we, when you pencil out the numbers, if we do what we think we're going to be able to do, we're going to generate really attractive returns. So, um, so yeah, so I bought into that. And I think in many ways, and then, and then the other aspect to Amazon, which I think has been much better than I would have ever dreamed, although we wrote about it in the first edition of Expectations Investing, is this concept of real options, right? So the argument we make is you can value a business based on what you can touch and feel today. So you just take the current operations sort of projected into the future and so forth. But certain types of businesses have optionality, which is they they may be able to use this, in, I, don't know, I shouldn't use the word platform, but they may be able to use this business to get into ancillary operations that can be value creating. And you know we argued that you have to have a management team that's really attuned to you know, sort of creating and fostering and, and exercising these options appropriately. It helps to be a market leader. It helps to have financial flexibility and so on and so forth. And then we use our original case study was Amazon. So we said, you know, they seem to have these qualities. And of course, you, you now look at the value. I don't know how much you would attribute to AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, but that's probably a big component of the value, yeah. right? which is, yeah. wasn't even a tw twinkle in Jeff Bezos' eyes when we wrote that back in, back in 2001. So that's really an interesting uh, development. So, um, yeah. And then, and then on the drawdowns, look, I just, it, it's like everything, everything was down, right? So it was down more than other stuff, but is mostly because I'm lazy. And I just thought like, I'm not gonna, I mean, it seems like dumb to sell it when it's down this much, if this is all true. And, you know, the other thing I was very influenced by was, uh, at that time, there's a wonderful book by Carlotta Perez, that came out probably in the early 2000s, where she talks about the interplay between technological revolutions and financial capital. So you talk about booms and busts in financial capital. And one of the points she made was, you know, it's often the case that the hard work happens after the financial bust, mm -hmm. right? So the dot-com was just a classic example. So we had this big, huge run-up, tons of capital, and then we had this bust, we had this three-year bear market. And, you know, what what we could say today, obviously, very clearly that that thesis was correct, which is the internet has become woven into businesses in a way today than it certainly wasn't 20 years ago. And so this idea that this, this, this would be fertile ground, a lot of competition gets wiped away, a lot of silly money gets wiped away, and this creates a, a very a fertile ground for them to, to grow their business. And that turned out to be the case. Now, the other thing is interesting about Amazon is they've had these fits and starts. They go through these investment spurts, which tends to depress earnings, and then they scale back the earnings, you know, the, the margins and stuff, they flourish a little bit, and then the stock makes these little runs. And so we're now in the mother of these investment <laughs> processes, right? So through COVID, they invested just a staggering amount of money, both in CapEx and in terms of operating expenses. And, um, you know, whether they, whether the returns will be there or not, I think it remains to be seen, but that's an interesting, also that interesting, we're probably in the phase now where it's digestion of investment that has been made. And if that is done effectively and that's executed effectively, that should lead to improved profitability with less capital and hence good cash flows and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's, I, I don't, I don't want to come across as a hero on this because it's mostly because I'm lazy when I buy something, I, I very rarely sell. And by the way, I've bought things that have essentially gone to zero. So, I mean, in other words, it's not like I don't want to come across as some sort of a genius. It, it was just mostly, but it was, it was that the original conviction came from talking to those people and thinking about the business in mm -hmm. that way and, um, and sort of just sticking with it. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I'm sure it's going to be encouraging to, to some people now to think that the hard work gets done and, 
in the bust and and some of the competition gets gets eliminated and you can uh, you can sort of build out of the forest fire i, I want to close it out with a couple of questions just um a little bit reflecting on on your career and, and the first question that came to me was um were, were, are there any fundamental ideas that you've changed your mind on anything when you look back at, at your work where you're like just discarded a model discarded an idea and and um yeah i think probably the one that comes to mind first is an understanding of markets and market efficiency and um you know i read uh, you know, I, I, I lean toward the Chicago school. I sort of like all that stuff. I like the market efficiency stuff. And I have to say that I, if you had asked me probably 20, well, more than that, probably close to 30 years ago, I very much aligned with that market efficiency literature and thought that made a lot of sense and understood that there were limitations to it, but just sort of said, that would be my default. And then I'll look for exceptions. Mm. Then I was introduced to the idea of complex adaptive systems that my education mostly came through the Santa Fe Institute. And when you start to understand the, the, the fundamental components of complex adaptive systems, um, the, there's no way to look at the stock market the same way again, personally, yeah. right? And, and I think that, by the way, a book which I'd recommend everybody should read, <clears throat> it's been around for a while, is uh, James Sherwicki's book, The Wisdom of Crowds. And The Wisdom of Crowds actually captures, I think, the sort of essential features, what we care about. So The Wisdom of Crowds would say crowds are wise when there are a diversity of agents, there's a properly functioning aggregation mechanism. And, and Frederick, just to tie this back to teams, you know, when we say that people don't say what they think, what we're saying is information's not being aggregated, right? So we're right. leaving out information and then incentives, right? Which is rewards for being right and penalties for being wrong. And so when those things are happening, you get wisdom crowds and, you know, and we can demonstrate in the classroom and elsewhere that that actually works really well. The key is how does the wisdom flip to the madness? And that's when one or more of these conditions break down. So this, I think, is a very robust framework. I certainly have changed my mind quite a bit on how that works. Um, so that's probably the bit of all these things that has been the biggest. And I'll just say, you know, the new version of expectations investing gave us an opportunity to reflect on the last 20 years. You know, you mentioned the public to private. That was certainly a component of it. The other one that I think I probably, well, we've been spending a lot of time on this last few years, but I also think it's an area that remains um, uh, more to be discovered and more to be explored, which is the rise of intangibles. Mm. And so it, it was, you know, when I grew up, and certainly when I started this business, investments were dominated by tangible investments, so physical assets. And intangibles were, of course, always on the scene, but not quite as prominent. And I think in the last, you know, couple of decades, for sure, we've seen a complete flip there. Intangibles now are the dominant form of investment. And that's important because the accounting is different. That's important because the characteristics of intangible assets are different than those of tangible assets. This is not, economics doesn't have to be rewritten. Economists have understood this for a long time, but they're now more important. And so that's a whole nother area where, you know, you, if you said to me, a company's profitable or, or unprofitable, you know, I would say that unprofitable is bad almost uniformly. And now recognizing there's a lot more nuance in that. You can be unprofitable for the right reasons or unprofitable for the wrong reasons. And making that distinction is actually really valuable. Mm, yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I love that. Uh, it, it always seems to all with you all seems to tie back together. It, it, it's such a, it's beautiful to, to see how it ultimately is all connected and you can pull on one thread and, and get back to the, um, to the common framework. Um, you've taught, you've been teaching for a long time at Columbia, the, the securities <laughs> analysis course. And I'm, and I'm curious if there's anything that, that stands out to you in terms of that you've learned to be an effective, an effective teacher. Yeah, well, I'm, I just think that um, 
the, the first thing to say about, and I don't know if I am an effective teacher, but I was to say that the great teachers I have known are great students. Um, and, and being a great student means you're constantly learning and you're excited about what you're doing. And so I've never lost any enthusiasm for these topics that we're talking about. I think this stuff is infinitely fascinating. The course is broken into modules on market and market efficiency, including an examination of the performance of professional investors, uh, a lot on valuation, a lot of competitive strategy, which also incorporates things like capital allocation and finally decision-making. And, and again, these are all fields where we don't really have the answers to almost anything, right? We're still working on all these things. So uh, I think that's part of it. And then the other thing I'll just say, this is just a communication thing, which is the key to me to be comfortable is to be really prepared. And so I spent a lot of time on preparation so that when I'm presenting ideas to the students, and by the way, by no means do I know, I'm sure I get lots of things wrong, but, I, but I'm very prepared and excited about the topics. And I think that enthusiasm and that preparation, I'm hopeful comes through. But you know, I, I did a little tweet thing of the last couple of weeks about how the course has changed over 30 years. And it's an interesting thing just to reflect back on and most of that, the answer to that question of how it's changed would say, what have I learned in the last 30 years? Now, part mm. of it is what has been revealed in research. So that you know, obviously uh, research in financial economics and strategy marches along, but also is what was I not aware of that I should have been aware of that I've now integrated in what we're doing. So now I'm at the point in the course where it's, it's I'm trying to pare it back because I, I want to keep it, I want to strip it back down to the core elements to make sure and then leave other stuff to be ancillary because it's, there's so much material to try to master in a yeah. short period of time. So that's, that would be the answer is I think that it's about learn to great teachers, to be an effective teacher. It's about being a great student, be a great learner yourself. And I think that comes through, I think, if you're doing it well. Yeah. And, and just <laughs> looking at, we, we talked about the, just the, the staggering number of, of books in your, in your house and on the topic of being a great student, there's still, I'm, I'm curious. So there's sort of two questions that are related in my mind, which is one, if you consider yourself a great student, like where, where are you going right now to, to learn? What are you interested in? And related to that, because there is so much information, there's so many new books, there's so many podcasts, like there's just this, um, how do you filter? How do you decide what areas to focus on as a, as a student and learner? Yeah. I didn't say, I, I hope I didn't say I was a great learner. <laughs> I aspire, <laughs> aspire, aspire, aspire to be, to be a great <laughs> learner, but I'm not sure that I am. Yeah, Frederick, I wish I, I, I wish I could say I'm more disciplined on this than I actually am. So I just sort of like meander around a fair bit and you can actually follow the research we publish and you can sort of see how I'm meandering about. The other thing I'll say is there are many, sometimes from time to time, there are topics that um, either I have revisited or things I talk about or pontificate about, but really haven't done a lot of work on. Mm. So for instance, cap two examples come right to mind with capital allocation. So I, for years and years, I've told my students, oh, capital allocation is the most important thing and you should really pay attention to it. And then Will's book came out and for all the wonderful things about Will's book, you know, it wasn't like a comprehensive discussion of ca capital allocation, right? It was a, a celebration effectively of people who had done yeah. it really well in some of those qualities. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should actually do serious work on this. So <laughs> that led to our big piece on capital allocation. And we hope to have something else on that at some point in the not too distant future. The other example was total addressable market, right? So everyone was like, Tam is this, Tam is that. You know, I'm like, where do these numbers come from? <laughs> how does that mean, does, is there a way to do this effectively, right? So we sat down and like, all right, like how, if I, we were really to do this seriously, how do we do this? And 
you know, we've killed the things like base rates and we use diffusion models and, you know, we use, we do use, we triangulated a few different techniques to try to come up with what we thought would be a, a, an effective way to think about and measure TAM. So, so that's the other thing. And um, there, a lot of it is just like a lot of nuance, you know, we're working on a piece now on, it, it, it's an interesting thing. So, so if you think about competitive strategy and obviously we're looking for businesses that have, you know, are unique and we'll have competitive advantage over some period of time. But that the, the reason you do that is because it ends up having an outcome. And the outcome is typically that the customers are loyal and they're happy and your market shares are attractive and your probability is good and so on and so forth. So the question is something like, can you go to any of those outcomes? For example, we focus in on market share and say, if I just examine the market share, so I, Frederick, I'm gonna show you nothing but the market share history mm. of this particular industry. Would you be able to say anything about the competitive positioning of the companies or the industry itself, right? So going backward and saying, Hmm, how does that work, right? And by the way, it's not just today's snapshot of today's market share. You have to look at the market shares over time, like how how they evolved, how are they more or less stable, all those kinds of things. Super interesting, right? So um, I always think we're going to have a, a list of things. Our, our list of things to work on is going to be exhausted, but it never seems mm -hmm. exhausted. There's always something else to work on. So you know, we're we're working on that. We're going to have something more on capital allocation. We'll probably come back to the DCF thing. There there are a lot of different um, so there's always stuff to circle back around on and, and, and talk about. So, yeah, I, don't, I think it's never ending. And in our industry, right, this is the nature of what we do. It's just inherently fascinating, right, because you're in it's the intersection of business and people and psychology and sociology and uh, numbers. I mean, there's just a lot of really uh, macroeconomic factors. I mean, so there's a lot of great stuff that's always going on that makes sure that you never have the game beat, right? Never. I, I agree. The, 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 I mean, there's a saying, right? The, the moment you think you're on top of it and, and, and you get it, the market is going to uh, humble you. And, and which is what, what keeps it interesting every day. This, this was fascinating. Thank, thank you so much, Michael. I, I really appreciate you sharing all of this. I, I had a, I, I, I learned a lot. I have so many notes that I want to get back to. I, I really want to thank you. Great. Well, thank you. And I also, again, reiterate, thank you for all you've contributed to the investment community. I really learned a lot from the stuff you put together. And it's really particularly fun to go back to investors that have been around for you know decades and, and maybe some younger investors have not seen or been exposed to because you realize that there's not that much new under the sun and many people said things really effectively back in the day. So it's really, I really appreciate all you've contributed to the community. It's as old as the hills, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>